Hello, and welcome to From Big Pharma to Recovery, the intersection of the opioid epidemic and the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Brian Lovins. On the final episode of the MOUD podcast, Recovery, Multiple Pathways, Multiple Options, we're going to talk about recovery. Today's perspective on pathways to recovery is much different than it was just five years ago. The field has moved away from a drug is a drug is a drug mentality, and everyone's treatment looks the same to a more individualized model. Grounded in the understanding that every person's pathway into substance use is unique, it stands to reason that every person's path towards recovery is unique as well. Today, we're gonna discuss the process of recovery, what it looks like for people who misuse opioids. We're gonna talk about recovery and does it ever end? And then discuss how return to use is part of many individuals' recovery stories. Lastly, we're gonna hear Two incredible recovery stories from our guests, John Trolley and Ashley Lewis. We are so grateful that they chose to share their journeys with us. Today, our conversations will include Dr. Jennifer Clark, former medical program director for the Rhode Island Department of Corrections and current medical director of the COVID unit for the Department of Health. Kristen Dawes, the chief medical officer for Indiana Department of Corrections. She oversees the health care for all incarcerated individuals within the Department of Correction. Brandon George, Director of Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition, and also the Vice President of Mental Health America, Indiana. Linda Hurley, the President and CEO of Kodak Behavioral Healthcare. Kodak is the largest and only nonprofit treatment of opioid use disorders in Rhode Island. Dr. Teresa May, Director of Harris County Community Supervision and Corrections Department, also known as adult probation. Dr. Ruth Poti, a board certified family physician and addiction medicine doctor and medical director of several methadone clinics, acute treatment services, and other residential recovery programs. Ashley Lewis. Ashley Lewis is a person in long-term recovery. She has lived experience in and throughout the criminal legal system, as well as professional experience building peer support programs that continue to thrive in the criminal legal system throughout the state of New Hampshire. John Trolley. John Trolley is a person in long-term recovery. He has lived experience with opioid use disorder in the criminal justice system. He has received MOUD while in jail, as well as through a community provider. Let's start by exploring different ways people recover. This first step in recovering is being able to start to heal the brain from the brain change that occurred in opioid use disorder or other substance use disorder. So you want to pick the medicine that's going to work the best for you. The medicine starts the process of recovery, and then the counseling and the group work continues to help the brain change. And then the body starts to change by the time someone is ready to be released, hopefully, you know, not always, this is very aspirational, but the peer recovery support specialists have started to talk to them about what's going to happen when you're released and about what those triggers are going to be and where you're going to go for your treatment, etc. So you get the support that's needed within the within the correctional institute, you get the support that's needed to get you to treatment. If you look at the research on recovery, even if you're not justice involved, if you have a serious addiction, 
you know, it's a long process. It can take multiple trials of different levels of care for someone to actually recover from an addiction. And if you look at the studies that are available, you know, you do find that when you add medication-assisted treatment with good, solid, you know, cognitive behavioral and best practice treatment and support for addiction, that people do have a better chance of recovery. They may relapse, there may be struggles, and they may have to go through another round of inpatient treatment or some other level of care. It's really important that we look at the whole person when when we think about substance use disorder and mental health. I come from a treatment background, and one of the things we used to say is, you know, hey, we need people to be sober for a year before we look at their mental health. Because there are a lot of overlapping symptoms between like withdrawal and, and cravings and other mental health issues, especially with stimulants. You know, there can be a lot of things that mimic psychosis related stuff. But what we figured out is we're much more effective at treating those things together. Like maybe not in that very initial week or or, or withdrawal and detox period, but we really need to address both because sometimes the mental health concerns can actually be the driving factor in the SUD. Sometimes people are are self-medicating they're using a certain substance to counteract what their brain's doing, right? Maybe they really run at a high speed, they're using it to slow them down or vice versa. And if we're going to really treat people and try to make them, you know, improve their well-being, we need to look at all of it. Now we can see how individual recovery looks different for everyone. That is why it is so important to see the person first and not just the opioid disorder. Dr. Poti, I've heard you talk about the transformation you've taken over the last 20 years from a believer in abstinence to one of harm reduction. I've become a real harm reductionist. As I look at myself over my 20-something years of practice, where I am today is very different than I even was three years ago. I mean, I run methadone clinics, and I talk to patients. I say, tell me about your goal. Is your goal to not use? Is your goal to reduce your use? And how can I help you? Like, where are we now? And where might you be later? I don't know that. People get fired from clinics for not being perfect, for having a drug screen that has marijuana in it, or because they used cocaine, or because they're still using opiates. And and instead, you know, I sit with people and acknowledge that your reduction of use, you going from IV use to intranasal use is positive for your health. You're less likely to overdose and you're much less likely to suffer the diseases that have to do with infection, right? HIV, hepatitis C, skin abscesses, endocarditis, spinal abscesses, all of that is reduced tremendously. It doesn't go to zero. There's still harm, but it's a lot less. So that's great. That's an accomplishment. High five. You've reduced your use from five grams to half a gram a day. That's huge. That's awesome, right? You know what you get then? You get to actually work and save your money and buy clothes for your kids to go back to school. That is a massive accomplishment in terms of your overall well-being on the planet. So I didn't talk like that even three years ago. I don't have the same expectation with this disease because I've never had this expectation with any disease. I'm a chronic care provider. When I take care of people with diabetes or high blood pressure, I don't look at them and say, you've got to fix this. If you don't do it perfectly, I'm going to take away your medicine. If you don't see the nutritionist, I'm going to stop your insulin. Like that's what we do with people with addiction. We set this bar incredibly high. We expect them to do it perfectly. And then we set up barrier after barrier to care. Do you know that to get methadone or buprenorphine in most places in this country, you're mandated to do therapy. There's no evidence that therapy is additive. It doesn't change outcomes for people. 
We don't do that with anybody. You're, de- you're depressed. What's the best treatment for depression? Therapy and exercise. We don't mandate it though. We don't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to stop your fluoxetine because you're not seeing a therapist. Yet somehow we get to stop people's medications because they're not doing the stuff we told them to do, even though there's no evidence behind it. It's crazy town. I can't even tell you as a doctor how non-evidence-based the medical care is that we provide people with opiate use disorder. It's not based in science. It's based in judgment and stigma. And that's coming from the medical side. It's coming from us. Medical professionals are not the only ones that are focused on abstinence. The criminal legal system is designed for zero tolerance for any misuse. We drug test people continuously, and when they have tested positive, often issue a punishment, even when someone is improving. If physicians have a hard time wrapping their brains around harm reduction, we can only imagine how hard it is for people working directly in the criminal legal system. I think that the message needs to be is if people are improving those four areas of their life, if their relationships are improving, they're showing up to work every day, their health is getting better, they've got stable housing, why does anybody care how they got there? Whether it's taking medication or whether it's family support, et cetera, I'm really proud. My team of leaders at my place of work all have different pathways to recovery. Some got there with a lot of family support. Some got there through peer support. Some got there through 12-step recovery. Some got there through medications for opioid use disorder. And really is just, it's so unique to each individual. We need to support multiple pathways to recovery. And any improvement to somebody's life is a recovery. As a physician, I think my answer is recovery is a continual battle, right? It's consistent and it can be a lifelong battle. Recovery is something that folks continually fight for. For me, recovery is being able to function without having to seek or use substances. So if you're on medication-assisted treatment, but you're working every day, you're taking care of your kids, you're going to school, you know, you're happy in life or you're getting through life, then that's recovery. And not that it's easy, all days aren't good. And we know that relapse is part of recovery. So giving ourselves that grace, but at the same time, being able to fight for it every day and being committed to living a sober life. And I have to say that the folks that I work for, the incarcerated individuals that I serve, really are a a remarkable group of individuals. Some of the things I've gone through, we haven't even spoke on the trauma, right, that can prompt substance use or spark substance use treatment. But a lot of the things that these men and women have gone through and who have fought back and won against a really... um, impactful. So I guess I would say everyone kind of maybe defines recovery for themselves. But for me, it's just that ability to function is so, so key. The people in the system are definitely resilient. I think sometimes the system sees people as failing when in all actuality, they are getting better. Relapse is a part of recovery. We expect it. It's not a failure. We see often people who are in and out of the system, maybe 30 days at a time, will start them on treatment and maybe it doesn't work the first time. Maybe it doesn't work the second time. But the third time, something changes and the person is able to reconnect with family, to really understand themselves more 
And it's kind of like smoking. I had many family members who smoke. I feel very fortunate that I never started smoking because I would probably be addicted as the rest of them. Many of them have quit and it wasn't one time and it might not have been the second or the third time. Maybe it was the fourth time for five years and then there was a death or some tragedy and people relapsed to smoking. So everybody's journey is going to be different. It is important that we never give up. An individual is never lost to addiction. There is always a road to recovery. Jennifer, you're absolutely right. There is always a road to recovery. It is important to never forget that the work we do helps people find those roads. Well, we've been on a journey together for six episodes now, and our time together is drawing to an end. We've explored Big Pharma and how they, along with doctors prescribing opioids for pain, really created a national crisis. We've discussed the impact opioids have had on rural communities, communities of color, and the elderly. We've talked about treatment and the intersection of opioid use and the criminal legal system. And finally, we dug into stigma and the major role it plays throughout the system and how it is important to center our work on the people who we serve. I don't know any better way to center people than to amplify their voices. So for this last discussion, I welcome John Trolley and Ashley Lewis to share their personal recovery journals with all of us. John? I moved out to Colorado when I was 18. I was a competitive skier. I moved to Steamboat Springs for one of their programs. I always partied. I didn't start using opioids until like my 30s after getting hurt so many times. What really started my addiction was I had like $5,000 worth of dental work done and the doctors way over prescribed me. They filled my prescriptions whenever I asked over a two month period. And from there, it just basically spiraled out of control. Pills for me became harder and harder to get, and that's when I switched over to heroin because it was way cheaper and it was much easier to get. I was using heroin for about a year before I ended up being arrested. I got arrested with quite a large amount, and the thing is is they were trying to make it sound like I was actually dealing, which wasn't the case at all. Kind of the way that I looked at it, I was kind of like a a squirrel. Like I was always afraid of being six. The amount that I had, sadly, was about four ounces. And I got four ounces for myself and my girlfriend at the time would last us two weeks. Just to give you an idea how bad our problem was. I was was doing close to seven grams of heroin a day and probably four to five grams of cocaine a day. When I did get arrested... With the amount that I had, I was looking at 10 to 30 years in prison. As soon as I got out of jail, I immediately sought help and started doing an outpatient program. And that's when I got on the Suboxone. And this time, I'm taking like a totally different approach. I'm in no rush to get off it. It's actually kind of like a safety net for me that hasn't even crossed my mind to use since I've been on it this time. I ended up going to jail for 90 days instead of the 30 years because of just taking my recovery seriously this time. Luckily, they just started a program in the Steamboat Jail that I was in that allowed me to stay on these medications. I was probably one of the first people 
going through there that they actually allowed us to continue to take Suboxone. In the past, I kind of was using Suboxone as like a crutch. Before, it was a lot easier for me to go back and forth off it. I wasn't taking as large of a dose. So this time I started with a much higher dose and it weaned down to a much lower level now. Like I said, the first rehab I went to wouldn't even allow me in there on Suboxone. So I basically had to detox off that. I detoxed over 10 days. I, so I was in a detox for 10 days getting off the Suboxone before they would even let me into their program. I think that was the mistake was they felt that any kind of substance in your body was considered a drug or anything. And I'm, this time I'm using it. I'm just not in any rush to come off it. Um, it's working. That's great to hear, and what a powerful example of grit, determination, and hard work. Ashley, we would love to hear your story as well. I grew up in a family where I needed and wanted for nothing. So as a result, I didn't really learn the value of things, and so much was done for me. I ended up lacking a lot of skills within myself to be able to know how to do those things on my own. And I like to refer to myself as a person who... I got like a adrenaline rush when I would do things that I shouldn't. And so I kind of navigated on that emotion for a long time. And then on top of that, I always struggled with self-worth and feeling good about myself and used validation in all the wrong areas. So as a combination of all those things, it ended up leading me into a lot of horrible life experiences. I got a DUWI about six months after I turned 21, and that would have been the first time I ran into getting in trouble. Very shortly after, I started doing pills, like way back when Oxy-80s, like the real ones, were on the street, and then, you know, Perk 30s and all that stuff. And I never really remember, like before graduating high school, having a drug and being like, oh my God, I need this. But I do remember doing lots of drugs and just loving the feeling of getting high. So it wasn't until after high school that I would start doing pills. And once I did one of those, I was like, I don't want anything else. So after I got my DWI, I never really drank after that. And then I just started going vicious with doing opiates. And then when all that stuff happened and all those prescribers were getting in trouble of, you know, all that stuff, they started yanking pills off the streets, heroin would be introduced, and that's kind of what happened. But within that story, I started getting in trouble after that with committing crimes to support my addiction. I got in trouble for my charge was knowingly drove a vehicle in which possessed drugs. I have possession charges. I have check fraud charges. Over a period of time, they would just progress and get worse, right, my charges. And so the first time I went to jail, I was like 22, ended up on probation, started getting probation violations, and eventually I would land up getting my first possession charge, which landed me in drug court in Stratford County in New Hampshire. I did well in the end and ended up graduating in the beginning. So it's interesting that I can bring this perspective also. I've done drug court twice and neither was the same. And I mean the program. So my first experience in drug court was very consequential. So if I hung out with people in drug court or I got high, I would be very scared to reveal that information because I knew I was going to jail. And so naturally, my dishonesty never changed, and I would try and ride it out as long as I could until I would get caught. 
And so that happened quite a few times. They would sanction me to programs in the jail and things like that. And so I eventually ended up getting pregnant and graduating. But when I graduated drug court, I had this idea. I was like, I've been in the criminal justice system so long at this point. I was like, I'm so excited to be done with drug court. I was still going to be on probation. So I was like, yay, let's go celebrate. Let's go out to Manchester and get drunk. So I did that. I went out and that very night car charges. Luckily, I was still on probation and they were able to like keep me in the program and just extend it and all that stuff. So it was kind of a saving grace. Ended up completing, had my baby. And then after I had my son, about three days later, I started using again. I eventually lost custody of him. Me and my kid's father ended up going down to mass with my son in the car to get drugs. And we got swarmed. My son got taken. Anyway, long story short, my parents ended up getting custody of him and crossing um, New Hampshire lines because we would pick up drugs in Massachusetts. So it was like a long custody battle. I tried to fight my parents to get custody of him, and it was just horrible that I would think that I was okay to even take care of him. They ended up getting custody of him. And I just kind of took off. Me and my kid's father ended up using a lot. We moved out to Oklahoma at one point to try and get clean. And that's where his mom lived. That did not happen. It became a very domestic, violent situation. And so my parents naturally flew out to get me. And we came back here. Very sick, very toxic. I ended up back with him. He came back here. More domestic violence. But then I woke up and he was dead next to me from an overdose. So... That happened June 2015, and then I kept using, I used probably the hardest that I ever used for the next six months, and eventually I would get picked up on December 27, 2015, and I've been clean since January 1st, 2016. Thanks, Ashley. Over six years in recovery. I'm sure it's taken a lot of hard work and dedication on your part. I want to pause for a second and talk about the term clean. We've talked about how important language is and how it can drive stigma, but we also need to recognize that individuals in recovery get to speak about themselves and their recovery how they like. But just because some people choose to use terms like clean, it doesn't make them less stigmatizing for others. So we want to make sure as we are talking with people that we are cognizant of the terms we use so that we don't attach stigmatizing language to recovery. Sorry for jumping in there, Ashley. So how was 2016 different for you? And so that was the last time I've ever been incarcerated and I got to do drug court again. So this time around in drug court, it was complete opposite. It was, if you use, let me treat you. If you're struggling, be honest. If you lie, you're going to jail. And that's exactly what I needed because it was those behaviors that weren't allowed to change in the past because it was very consequential. And so my case manager had also told me, I have very high expectations of you. I've case managed you before. I know how you operate and your consequences are going to be much greater if you try and do the same things again. And so I was very scared. I had, I had like a five to seven over my head and I just didn't want to go to prison. And that's kind of how it started. I didn't even want to be clean. I just didn't want to go to prison. And so I kind of latched onto that and I did really well. I just, one thing happened after another. I lived at transitional housing, which is attached to the jail for about eight months. And one thing after another, I started accomplishing. I started getting my license back. I got a job. I started getting a bank, like all the things that are like a necessity to live. So I started doing that. I slowly started to integrate myself back into my son's life. 
I ended up taking this thing called the Recovery Coach Academy. And in that academy, my teacher had worked for a place called New Futures in our state, which is an advocacy place. I had disclosed parts of my story within that class and she started asking me if I want to do some advocacy. And so I did. And so once I started doing advocacy, one thing started leading to another and another and another. And I got to be able to do some really awesome things. I launched our Medicaid expansion here. I did a lot of advocacy around that. I got asked by Senator Hassan to go to where Trump addressed the nation. I got to go attend that with her. I ended up going on CNN and asking the senators a question on the debate. And I've spoken at numerous things around here. So as a result, those things started fueling purpose. Like I started feeling purposeful. Like people were reaching out to me and saying, oh my God, thank you. You've helped me. You've changed, you're helping me in this moment or you've changing my life. And so I really latched onto that. And being that I have a lot of experience in the criminal justice system, I started taking like my passion and my purpose and using it for the better good. Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing your journey. So lastly, I'd like to hear what recovery means to the two of you. It's definitely, it's something that I'll never be cured from. I mean, recovery for me is just every day just striving to be better and just keeping everything new because if um, I've, one thing I have found in recovery is, you know, like I live out in the country. I live in a very isolated, and I'd say probably I got away from even going to meetings and stuff. I forgot how much that that helps with my recovery and being isolated i got a little bit too comfortable and just kind of started relaxing in my recovery and you you actually feel it it's something you have to continue doing whether it's going to a meeting whether it's reaching out to someone in need but you know service is a huge thing in recovery trying to be there for the next person my girlfriend she works in a trauma center out there so she does it she's a part she's in recovery one way or another every day and it's just a matter, it's just finding time and just re- being able to reach out to people and having people be able to reach out to you. The recovery community is a very tight niche community and they're always there with open arms. Say I slipped or not, they're the same people and they're always going to be there to, you know, to let you back in. And Ashley, you get the last word. What does recovery mean for you? So recovery means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? And for me, professionally, someone's in recovery when they say they're in recovery. And their recovery might look a lot different than mine. What it started out as is not what it is today. So mine started out as being in drug court, right? Abstinence and doing HA meetings like every single day. Now I don't go to meetings. I'm abstinent, but I have seen a therapist here and there and I work with a dietitian. Like that's what my recovery looks like now, but I also like have a house, I have my kids, I just had a baby. You know, I'm married now. I have such good relationships with my family. That's what my recovery is. We want to thank all of our guests for their time. Your knowledge and experience made this project possible. We hope that this podcast will serve as a useful resource about MOUD please visit the Opioid Response Network MOUD and Corrections page, which we'll link in the description of this episode. And while you're there, check out the resources available and submit a request for your own technical assistance.